you're suddenly identifying and realizing women don't look like they do in the papers. We all have scars and bits we don't like. So what, you've had cancer. These are your scars, own them. They don't define you. And I love seeing all these women coming forward and men saying, this is me, look at me. you are tuning in to the Capsule in Conversation podcast, dedicated to women and their well-being. I'm Natalie Anderson, and today I'm joined by best-selling author, speaker, and former breast surgeon, Liz O'Riordan, to talk surviving breast cancer, raising awareness, and empowering others. So sit back, relax, and get ready to join us in our conversation. Hello all, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you've all had a great week. I'm very excited to welcome today's very special guest as her expertise in breast cancer comes from both professional and personal experience. A former breast surgeon, she developed breast cancer at the age of 40 and has since actively campaigned to raise awareness of the disease, penning two best-selling books, hosting her informative podcast, So Now I've Got Breast Cancer, and using her social media and public engagements to inform and empower others. Since her initial diagnosis in 2015, she's documented her cancer journey and using her platform and experiences to help others navigate the difficulties of diagnosis, medication, treatment, and their mental health, resulting in her becoming one of the leading voices in breast cancer awareness. It is my great pleasure to welcome her today, the wonderful Dr. Liz O'Riordan. Hi, Liz. Hi, Natalie. You made me blush with that intro. Oh, no. Thank you so much for being with me today. It's so lovely to have you with me. You're welcome. And have you just got back from the hedgehog shelter? Yes, I have. Every Tuesday morning, I volunteer at a hedgehog shelter, mucking them out, cleaning up the pee and the poo. Um, It's run by a couple in their 70s, and it just brings me joy every week. And sometimes, you know, those are the things, those little things that actually you just distance yourself from other things that are going on and just get back to simplicity or just helping out and doing things that, yeah, just make you feel so like it warms your heart. So I'm glad you've had a good morning. And I think it gives me, I'm I'm helping without wanting anything in return. It's that kind of pure needless thing that I do that just brings me joy. Absolutely. Now, in my introduction, I mentioned that you received your first breast cancer diagnosis in 2015. And despite having successful treatment both then and again in 2018, this year you were given the news that your cancer had returned for a third time. How how has that been for you? It was completely surreal. It always seems to be when I'm cycling in Italy. I just done a big, huge event where you cycle up the mountains and the Dolomites, and I was planning to go back just got out of the shower, ready to pack. And I saw like a little spot, an ulcer above my mastectomy scar. And I knew that's another local recurrence. Right. And it's just not again, the drugs haven't worked. What is going to happen? That fear of what does this mean for the future? And luckily it wasn't anywhere else. So I had surgery to remove it, but the treatment I'm on now to stop it coming back is really, really hard. Um, it's targeted therapy. I I get monthly bum injections. My hair's thinning. I've got an awful sore tongue, change in appetite. You can get a bit of diarrhea and it's, it's more collateral damage that I'm going to be on for the rest of my life. Mm. And it's really hard dealing with that emotion when I'm still doing my platform stuff about trying to help people and raise awareness. And it's like the days when you're a patient and you just can't cope with the questions people are asking you. It's really hard. I imagine so. I mean, that's one of the questions I was going to ask you a little later on, um, because that is something that you've looked into is, yes, you obviously get the physical diagnosis, 
and your body has to go through the physical um, battle really but the mental side of it and the mental side especially with you and your job because you were a breast surgeon I imagine everyone's coming to you and going you know about this and you're experiencing this like as and as you say the overwhelm must be some days where you just think ah, shut up <laughs> It's really hard. And again, I, I had to stop working when my cancer came back. My left arm didn't operate properly, so I physically couldn't operate. So I now volunteer my time online to help people. And it's a way of keeping my brain, stopping getting bored at home. But you think, I, I can't help people personally because I can't be their doctor, but it's easy for me to give advice. And then you just spend your whole time helping and helping other people thinking, actually, I'm still a patient myself. And it's trying to find that barrier, but it's so hard to say no. I imagine because again, you've got firsthand experience. And when you yeah. know, like when women have got, you know, and men as well, that have got the, that initial diagnosis and the terror and the fear, you've got that experience to be able to kind of, you know, help and reassure people. But as you say, at the same time, you are a patient um, and you do need to obviously put yourself first. Um, but I, it was, I expect it was the same when you were writing your book, you know, the, the most recent book, Under the Knife, is. Was that kind of because it's a very raw book filled with emotion, but was it was it a cathartic experience for you as well? Completely. So I started writing it in lockdown. It's kind of my memoir of training to become a surgeon. But I had suicidal depression twice as a cancer surgeon. The stress of telling 10 women a day they had cancer, you don't get counseling. It's really, really hard and you get complaints and people are angry. And I wanted to talk about it. I was too scared to say I had depression as a consultant because I was scared of what my colleagues would think and what patients would think if they found out, would you want to be treated by a doctor with depression, which was crazy. And then I realized there were no books written by female general surgeons. And I wanted the public to understand when the tabloids are bashing doctors in the media, the 20 years of training and sacrifice and harassment and bullying and sexism that you go through to get to do this job, but reliving it was really hard to write down and it was it was almost like it didn't happen to me it happened to someone else mm. and a way to kind of help me move on from everything that has happened like an out-of-body experience I imagine Completely. like looking like at your reality through yeah through it from a distance and as you say kind of reliving a lot of those moments I mean if we go right back to the the beginning of your cancer journey you it's been a long road for you and you know you were working as a breast surgeon how did that initial diagnosis come about were you aware was it was it a routine checkup was it did you feel differently so I never checked my breasts. I thought I'm never going to get breast cancer. I'm young. There's no family history. It won't happen to me. A couple of years earlier, I'd found a lump in my breast. It felt like a small round balloon and it was a cyst. And my husband had just proposed to me and he was away on holiday. And I remember crying on the sofa, howling, it's cancer. I'll be dead in a year. I can't wear a wedding dress. My breasts will be removed. What's the point? He won't marry me. Just that whole wave of hysteria. It was just a cyst. I have very lumpy breasts. Calm down. And I'd had another cyst six months before my diagnosis with completely clear scans. And one morning I got out of the shower and I looked in the mirror and I saw another lump in my cleavage. I just thought it was a cyst. And it was only my mum who said, look, will you get it checked out? Fine. Okay. Mammogram was normal. I had an ultrasound and I looked at the screen and I saw a cancer. And whereas most people are drip fed information, I knew 
I'm young, it's big, I'll need chemo. I had a good idea what my chance of being alive in 10 years was. I knew what was going to happen to me, or I thought I did. And it was suddenly, this is happening to someone else. And it's very, it's weird being a doctor treated by your colleagues. They're all in tears. And I'm like this out of body experience. And we're not sure whether we can treat you because you're a friend. And it was, it was really, really hard. But I was, I was embarrassed about how little I knew about what my patients go through. I didn't know what chemo was like. I thought I did. And it was a real wake up call to go through and sit in that chair and have radiotherapy and decide whether you want a reconstruction. I, exactly that. Like you've just said, you know, and you're giving advice and you were, were you still, were you still working across that time or did you have to give up work completely because the, it, the treatment was so intense? A lot of people do work through chemotherapy, but because I was a breast surgeon, I thought I cannot have breast cancer treatment and mentally cope with being a surgeon. Um, So I didn't work. And that was really hard, suddenly having a job and a purpose and a focus. And I just spent five months at home, gradually feeling more and more shit. And I didn't realize you lost all your body hair, free Brazilian and leg wax on the NHS. I knew you were meant to feel poorly, but I didn't call for help because I thought I meant to feel really bad and I got told off. and then going through radiotherapy and surgery and slowly realizing this this has changed my life forever. And I wasn't sure whether I could go back to work. And I ended up shadowing a local hospital consultant to see ethically, can I be a doctor with a patient or am I a patient in the room? But I, I was scared to operate because I didn't want to make my patients hurt. And telling someone they had cancer for the first time, I watched them crumple. And then you kind of swallow and you take a big breath and squeeze their partner's hand. And I thought, God, that's how I looked. And I want to say, yes, this is shit. It's the end of the world, but we have to be positive. And it was it was so hard learning to be a doctor again. The mental strength that that must have taken for you and your body was already, like I said, fighting. And, you know, you've, you've got yeah. the, the mental overload of trying to be positive. You know, everyone's like, think positively. And sometimes you're like, I, know. <laughs> I don't want to think positively. Again, going through the menopause as well. You can't have HRT. You've got, you, you don't sleep, the hot sweats and night flushes, the loss of libido. And everybody says you look great. And I get it because... The pictures we see of cancer in the TV and films are often people in a hospice at the end of their days. You and I could both have cancer, no one would know. And people don't know what to say. They say, oh, you look great, because they expect to see us looking gaunt and bald. It's like they can't see the collateral damage. They can't see the pain, the grief, the loss, the, the aches and the pains that you live with every day. And I think that's really hard. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, you know, and, and again, throughout a lot of kind of when I was researching you, a lot of the the conversation, again, does revolve around mental health and the mental health of patients. I mean, if you could just talk me through for anyone that's listening in that, you know, might be nervous or worried or have spotted something. What happens after a, a breast cancer diagnosis? I mean, obviously, we've got different stages of cancer. What you know, what does that mean? So the first thing I'd say is 90% of people we see in a breast clinic don't have breast cancer. But we need to check every change out to make sure it's not. When you're diagnosed, um, the, what they do is we take a little biopsy, a piece of tissue, either with a scan or ultrasound scan or a mammogram, and you'll call back a week later. And I used to tell everybody to bring someone with them because it's horrible waiting by yourself. When you come back to get the results, the whole team of breast cancer doctors, so that's people who deal with chemotherapy and radiotherapy and the x-rays, have all discussed you and your scans and your biopsy results. So we have a plan. The basic treatment of breast cancer is surgery, and that's to remove the cancer, hoping for a cure. 
everything else is to reduce the risk of it coming back. And the surgery you have depends on a couple of things, the size of your cancer compared to the size of your breast. Although we can do wonderful things about bringing tissue in and moving it around, sometimes we have to remove the whole breast because you'll get an awful cosmetic result otherwise. Then we talk about things like chemotherapy and other targeted therapy and radiotherapy and hormonal therapy to reduce the chance of it coming back. The second thing we do is we have a look at the lymph nodes under your armpit because breast cancer can spread there. And if it's in the lymph nodes, it doesn't mean it's incurable. It means it's more likely to spread in the future. So you're more likely to get extra treatments like chemotherapy. So there's a plan done on hundreds of trials, looking at millions of women and say, this is what is best for you. And it's really individual based on your tumor receptors. The stage means how big your cancer is, has it spread, how likely is it to come back in the future? And you get so much information and jargon thrown at you. And it's kind of why I write my first book, why I wrote my first book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, just to explain it in really simple terms. So you can go home and say, right, they said her to, what does that mean? Let me go and have a look. And and as you said, then you, the amount of information that is given to you is it's unbelievable. I mean, I can only talk from a very small place, really. My husband had a bit of a scare during the pandemic and we were having to go to, you know, the cancer unit. And it, and it is very overwhelming. We had a positive outcome, thankfully. Um, but, you know, seeing other people that don't have that positive outcome and the the worry and the fear and the stress. And, you know, for me as a, as a mom and as a wife, as our family, I can't even imagine the toll that that would take on a family unit in general or or just any individual when the outcome isn't so positive and you know again going back to the mental health side of things and the mental preparation for women that do have to have mastectomies that is a huge thing that is such a big thing and I know that that's something that you went through isn't it and how do you how do you build back from that I think It's really, really hard because you don't know what your breasts mean to you until you're told one has cancer and you might need to lose one, have one surgically removed. And I had the luxury of five months of chemo because I had chemo first to decide whether I wanted a reconstruction. And I used to wear kind of V-neck dresses for work as a surgeon. And if you have a mastectomy and you wear a prosthesis, the bras are full cupped. So the bra would show in my V-neck dresses and I can't wear turtlenecks because of the hot flashes and the menopause. So, uh, But I felt guilty that I wanted a reconstruction for vanity. And I also thought if I'm a reconstructive surgeon and I don't have an implant, what my patient's going to think? So I went through with it. Sadly, what radiotherapy can do is make it form a hard capsule. So I had a lot of pain and it wrinkled up, but it's not a breast reconstruction. It's tissue or an implant. So you don't need to wear a prosthesis. The skin is numb. I kept my nipple, but it doesn't work. It's cold. It's weird looking down thinking, I'm never going to look the same. And then when I had my first recurrence, I had to go flat. And I remember walking around Debenhams at the time crying. I couldn't wear a bra because I had chronic pain thinking there are no tops with ruffles or it was in the summer. Those are on the wrong side. How am I going to walk around without people staring at my chest? And it took six months for me to be able to look at my scar in the mirror and to let my husband look at me naked because I felt I felt disfigured initially. But five years on, I don't care. I'm proud of it. It's just my body. And it takes time. 
And I think a lot of women are rushed into making decisions based on how they think their partners will feel or their grandchildren. I've had a woman say, what will my grandchildren think when I walk around the house naked and she can't see a breast? And they do what they think is right for other people. And all you can do is trust your gut at the time and just be kind to yourself. But it's really hard to wake up and look down and think there's nothing there. I think this is one of the the most amazing things really about social media. My one of my best friends had um bowel cancer and she's got a stoma now. And that attachment for her was she'd been a dancer all her life. And I know that coming to terms with this new body has been one of the biggest challenges in a way more than the physical treatment that she went through. But yet the community that she's found online and on social media has really really helped her massively kind of accept who she is and I know that's something that's really important to you isn't it on your social media platforms is yeah raising awareness but also making women feel that they're not alone and kind of feel included that you can have these open conversations and that do you know what I mean completely it's yeah it's One of the best days of my life was when I told Twitter I had breast cancer and I was flooded with support from people all over the world who I didn't know saying, right, this is how to cope with chemo. This is what you did. And I found doctors who did cancer and I've got my own little tribe where we support each other. And by showing my scars and saying, this is reality, you've got, and there's so many groups like Flat Friends, but now there are lingerie designers. It's incredible. There's a company called Echo Eno and Scarlett and Anna Ono in the States who are doing, and Buttress and Snatch, who are making bras with just one cup for women who don't have two breasts. And it's like, this is okay. This is who we are. The Girl versus Cancer, where she's got women of all shapes and sizes and underwear and stomas. It's amazing. And you're you're suddenly identifying and realizing Women don't look like they do in the papers. We all have scars and bits we don't like. So what, you've had cancer. These are your scars, own them. They don't define you. And I love seeing all these women coming forward and men saying, this is me, look at me. It's incredibly empowering, isn't it? And I expect that there's an element of you that, again, in the current phase of where you're at in your journey, that actually this is really helpful to you. And to feel, to see those other people feeling confident and smiling and kind of, Yes, of course, they'll be going through a lot of difficult times, but to actually have that support is a huge thing. It's incredible. I mean, it's it. I kind of do what I do online to, so I can still help people. So I'm still a doctor. And if I can, to one person listens to a podcast question or sees a post and say, thank you, I'm not alone. I got my husband to look at this. I read this with my brother. I now know what you're going through. And, and it, it's it's everything that the community, the support, it wasn't around when I was going through it the first time. And it's amazing that there's so much out there to help everybody. And, you know, because people are obviously going to naturally come to you because you, you, you've got breast cancer, but also you, you've got all that experience as a breast surgeon as well. It's incredibly informative, your channel and your um, platform you know, when you think about, I, I was going, I've got some questions later on about um, the menopause and breast cancer and all the different kind of medications and all these incredible things that you discuss in real detail that people can trust. Because sadly, there are a lot of people out there as well that aren't quite what they say they are. And where to get the right information is really important, isn't it? 
It's so hard. And I, I almost wish doctors would digitally signpost patients and say, right, you've got cancer. These are the apps, websites, bloggers, influencers that our patients have recommended because you're going to go on your phone. I used to tell people, don't Google. It's crazy. It's the first thing I did. And I think the problem is there are so many, there are several people who are giving misinformation, but when you have a million followers on TikTok, people believe, they think it must be true because look at all the followers they have. I spend eight hours researching every video to make sure it's up to date and current. It's a lot of time, but I want to know I'm a trusted source, but it's hard getting that traction. I could go out tomorrow and say, actually, I shouldn't say, I could say carrots to cause X, Y, and Z. Um, people could believe me. They don't know. There's no proof you can say what you like. And I think it's really hard when you're entering the cancer space online. Who do you trust? Who do you believe? Is someone trying to make money from me or is this a good thing? And that's the problem with social media. Absolutely. Like we say, you know, yes, you've got this incredible positivity from it, but then there is that negative side of knowing who to trust. I mean, for you personally, you are very trustworthy and you've worked oh, a lot thank with, you, Natalie. with breast cancer care as well. And, you know, you are actively trying to raise awareness. Now, you know, if we can just talk a little bit about kind of, again, some of the some of the things to do with like uh, raising awareness and, and actually women being being nervous, you know, about mammograms. And all, as you said, you know, up until you were 40, you were like, oh, it won't happen to me. Kind of, you know, you felt fit and healthy. And I think, I suppose I've probably got a bit of that mindset. I do check my breasts, you know, and I do look at like what to look for and everything. And it's kind of, you know, with programs like Lorraine, which I know you've been on very recently. And I love Lorraine for the fact that she does have this amazing platform and raises awareness of what we need to do. You know, just just talk to me kind of if you were about to go for a mammogram, let's just say you're a younger lady or, or either or you've just never been before. What can women expect? So I'll be honest, I was scared of having a mammogram because I thought it would hurt. And I and I sent all my patients for one. We generally do them in women around the age of 40 and upwards because they're not very accurate when you're young. And that's because you have lots of hormones. So your breasts are dense, ready for you to get pregnant. And a dense breast means it looks white on a mammogram and cancers look white. So we can't see them. What you do is you get undressed. You take the top half of your things off. So if you're going, don't wear a dress. It means you can leave you. It's easy. Then you're kind of standing there in your knickers. And there's lovely women in there who will position you in place and you're standing up or they can lower it if you're in a wheelchair and your breast is lifted onto a plate. And what they then do is lower, a, it's like a horizontal plate, your breast sits on it and they lower a plate on top of your breast to kind of squish it, to flatten it as much as possible. It was an uncomfortable pinch. It did sting a bit. It made my eyes water, but I have dense breasts and it's painful for about 30 seconds or so whilst they take the scan and then that pressure is released. Then they do it again, but they squish your breast from left to right instead of top to bottom. And again, they, they're they great. They big breath in, count the seconds down. It's not pleasant for some people, but a mammogram can pick up cancer at tiny stage millimeters where it's too small to be seen. And when you think of all the things you put her through, you know, dyeing our hair and the sting from the bleach and, you know, waxing and stuff, a quick 30 seconds of a pinch of your breast to look for a breast cancer, I think is worth it. So when you get to the screening age, please, please go. Most of us check our breasts when there's someone in the media diagnosed, you know, Sarah Harding or Amy Dowden, and we forget. And we don't check our pee or our poo or look at our genitals to see if you've got vulval cancer. We don't check our moles. We're invincible. And I get that. But maybe every month putting a reminder, and ideally when you're young, I know it's great to say feel it on the first, but if you've got very lumpy breasts that change a lot with your periods, you should feel in the middle of your cycle when your breasts are less lumpy. 
but do it. And what are we looking for? Because again, I've always been thought thinking, you know, there's a change in the nipple, there's a different, there's a discoloration, any leakage, but also like you're looking for a pea-sized lump. This is what is in my head. Is that still correct? Is as has the information changed? It's still correct, but there is a bit more to look at. There are lots of videos out there. I've got one pinned on my Instagram profile showing you has how a surgeon does it. The first thing you do is you strip off and you look in the mirror and you're looking to see, firstly, are your breasts symmetrical? What do they look like normally? Do your nipples normally go in or out? You're looking to see if there are any lumps or dents or dimples that you can see on the breast skin. Then what you're going to do is put your hands above your head. And what that does is lift the breasts on your chest wall. And if there's a cancer at the back of the breast, it can sometimes tether the skin. So you'll see a little dimple, a bit like material being pulled in. You then put your hands on your hips and push in and you look at your breasts again. Are there any changes that you can notice? And it may be the slightest dimple that you suddenly see that means there's a cancer at the back of the breast. If you've got really small breasts that you can't hold a pencil underneath, you can do it standing up or in the shower. If you have got breasts that are droopy, ideally you want to be lying back in bed on a couple of pillows or in the bath. And you are feeling for any lump or any change that is different on one side than the other. You may feel a definite lump. Now, most lumps are small and round and are things like cysts, but any lump that's new. If there's nipple discharge, it's normal to get nipple discharge. It's like brownie, greeny, creamy, a bit like the snot. Um, and that's because it's the ducts are open to the air, you get bacteria in them. But if the nipple discharge is bloody or it's crystal clear, and that may be looking in your bras at the end of the day or, or in your nighty when you've been sleeping. And you also want to see if your nipple is pulled in and you can't pull it out anymore. So it's just any change in your breast. And that's why doing every month gets you to know what's normal. Absolutely. And, and, you know, breast cancer is the most common cancer in the UK with one woman. I couldn't believe this stat. One woman diagnosed every 10 minutes. Yep. And 31 women die every day. Which is incredible. Or is every month. That could be every month. Sorry, I got my my brain. Menopause, brain fog. (laughs) But it's incredible. One every 10 minutes. One every 10 minutes. I mean... There, There is a, a better survival rate now from what I'm kind of seeing, which is, you know, almost nine in 10, 85% of women survive breast cancer for five years or more. The most recent stat that is, which is incredible because it has doubled over the last 40 years. Um, and am I right in thinking there is now a cancer vac- breast cancer vaccine? Yes, they're looking into a vaccine for women with HER2 positive breast cancer that could cure stage four disease. And just I'm rewriting my breast cancer book. In the last the last five years, there are now 20 new breast cancer drugs that have been developed to treat women who've got stage four disease. It's incredible. And we're now giving more and more people chemotherapy up front, which is just melting the cancers away. Which So again, if you've got the diagnosis and you go in and you do have those kind of overwhelming, oh my gosh, feelings that there is, it doesn't have to be the kind of horrendous outcome that it used to be many, many years ago. There is definitely a lot of positive research, obviously, that's been done. And there's a lot more positive outcomes than than there were so many years ago. Um, But again, that's awareness and it's research and it's funding. And that's where, again, people like you come come involved, get involved. You know, I know that you did an incredible fundraising um, challenge dressed as the lady from the Expendables. Yeah, that's right. Do you, again, do you enjoy that kind of side of things, kind of going, okay, let's do something together that we can actually 
get funds in, raise money so that we 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 do have women that are living a lot longer when they get that diagnosis. It's really important to me to try and raise money and make sure it goes to the right place. So I'll often do things for um say the um the IC the Institute of Cancer Research have breast cancer projects that right I'm going to do a big thing to raise money for you so my money is going to fund that project with breast cancer now to do this because often you don't know where your money goes and I'm always a bit wary about I'll go and do a load but getting people together doing crazy things it's like it's a way of giving back and helping people in the future ideally every patient would be in a trial to see is this drug the next best thing and it's it's another way of giving back. I'm alive. I've I've come through three types of breast cancer. I want to make sure I can do more to help other women come through it. But it is becoming more common in women under the age of 50. And we don't know why. And that's why it's still really important that young women check their breasts regularly because there isn't breast screening available for you. That's incredible because I didn't know that. And, you know, that is something that, again, I suppose in a way we've on this podcast, we've been trying to actively um, raise awareness of the perimenopause and how women, you know, prior to the age of 40 in their late 30s should be have a health screening, should be, you know, to have their hormones levels checked. It's kind of all in really isn't it we we need to be seen a lot earlier on like we, we're assuming that women in their 30s and 40s are really well and really healthy and really fit and the menopause doesn't affect you and you know breast cancer oh that's over 50s when actually as you say all these issues are a lot happening a lot earlier and it's really important that we we make sure that women do think I need to do this it's not something that I need to put off I've really for the sake of my family partners friends friendship groups this is important like for the rest of my life and I think it's great you've got charities like Copperfield going into schools showing you because I wasn't shown how to check my breasts you're not told at school you're not told at university you kind of I only learned as a medical student so going into sixth formers and say you can get breast cancer in your 20s and banging home the really boring public health messages like if you cut down on alcohol to less than seven units a week and you exercise regularly, it will reduce the risk of you getting seven, 13 cancers. It will reduce the risk of heart disease. It will reduce the risk of your bone thinning in the future. It's what you do in your twenties and thirties that has an impact when you're forties and fifties. It's almost too late to start it when you reach that perimenopause age. But I wouldn't have listened to me because I was drinking yeah. like a fish at medical school. I'm fine, I'm invincible. And it's how you get that. Don't go and spend 50 quid on a supplement in Holland and Barrett. Actually, go for a run, exercise, cut back on the drink. There are more and more non-alcoholic options available. And I think it's that message we really need to start bringing home. I do think the younger generation, though, are more open to it. Because yes. if you look at the current like wellness trends and how many influencers, some using their platforms for brilliant things, some just, you know, a bit more commercial. But at the at the end of the day you know again we we've done a lot of work on mindful drinking and being people being sober curious and it tends to be a lot of the younger generation that are actually actively encouraging that lifestyle which gives me great hope because i think well yeah if we if we do need to get those messages to younger women then hopefully they are going to be more open to what it is that we're trying to say um but again just being clever with the the messaging like copperfield you know the 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 fact that they've they've always been quite cheeky anyway but you know getting themselves out there and kind of not not rebranding it that's a, I suppose not the right word but making it so that it's attractive to younger people to listen to and they don't feel like they're being lectured 
that's a really important way of, like you said, getting getting into schools. I mean, something you touched on earlier was breast cancer and menopause. And I know that this is a huge thing because the menopause in general or perimenopause, you know, when you've got all these symptoms happening and not necessarily being able to take HRT and having to look at alternative therapies. How has that been for you and how are you navigating this? So I'll I'll be honest, I used to tell the women I started on hormonal blockers that they'd have about six months of hot flushes and a bit of vaginal dryness and they'd be fine. I assumed the GPs were helping them. And then I got it at the age of 40, chemotherapy, instant menopause, followed by tamoxifen. And I thought I'd wet myself. The first time I had a night sweat, I was lying in bed and I felt this trickle of water going down my bum crease. That oh my god! And then the the stains on the mattress from the sweating in the night, the duvets off and on. It was really hard. And then the vaginal dryness, the loss of libido, the aches and pains, and it's like I am suffering. And it's not a slow three or four year decline. It is instant. One or two weeks, you change overnight. My poor husband. I then had my ovaries removed and I'm now on bum injections to keep my estrogen load to stop it happening again. And it is fantastic that there is now so many, so much information, so many resources to help women go through the menopause. In fact, one of my last podcasts was with Dr. Anise Mukherjee, who's an endocrinologist who's had breast cancer herself. And also a lot of a lot of the things we attribute to the menopause, like you know, mood swings and irritability and insomnia, it may simply be due to the roller coaster of having cancer. The mental side effects of depression, anxiety, treatment, fatigue can all give you kind of many pausal symptoms. And for many women, it's the simple things like exercising regularly, good sleep hygiene, eating a healthy diet will help with a lot. But there are now several drugs that can be used instead of HRT, but they're they're antidepressants and anti-epileptics and painkillers. And it's realizing you're not being given them because your doctor thinks you have epilepsy. They actually work with the hot flushes, but it's really hard. It's hard at 43 watching um, Fleabag thinking there's nothing happening when the hot priest comes on. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't spontaneously get physically oh. aroused anymore. Um, that side of things is really, really hard. The impact on relationships and fertility. I still grieve for the kids I can't have because of chemo. And I think when you hear the ridiculous scaremongering that HRT can cure dementia and heart disease, it's all BS. It's not licensed for that. Women write to me in their hundreds saying, does that mean I'm going to die of dementia because I can't have HRT? And again, it comes back to what you read online and what you believe. And it's we're trying to break through the misinformation, but it's really hard. It's so hard, especially when you've got like online publications or you know the papers and they just want that sensational headline and it's so damaging it's really damaging it was like the the most recent one saying that cbt is better than hrt which i think was out last week and it's not technically correct in terms of like oh well actually you don't need to take hrt you need talking therapy or you need cbt that's but the way that the papers and the online publications kind of frame it and yeah. send we're, it out. We're gaslighting it's... women and it's male. Yeah. CBT can help with an awful lot of the symptoms of the menopause and it's free and there's no drugs and there's no side effects. It's a great thing. But as you said, it's those headlines. And then you spend weeks trying to rebuild confidence and unpick them. And trying to, again, help women point them in the right direction and saying, okay, right, you know, this is this. But actually, and there is an element of truth in that, but we need to go back to this. I mean, I suppose it's the same when, uh, you know, many years ago now that um, 
the link between HRT and breast cancer, there are still lots of women who are very frightened to take HRT for, because they are still thinking it will give me breast cancer. What? Where are we with that conversation? I know it's moved forward quite a lot, but you know, from your expertise, where are we with that? So both the pill and HRT do very slightly increase your own personal risk. But when they say it may double your risk, if you're 20, your risk of breast cancer is like 0.002%. So it's, it's, it's a tiny, tiny increase. I think if you've been on the pill or HRT for longer than 10 years, that risk does start to go up. But for the first five or 10 years, it's fine. It's completely safe. And again, if you exercise and cut down on alcohol and try to keep your weight down, you can halve your risk of getting breast cancer. So it's again, and those things will help with the symptoms of the menopause. It's It's the boring stuff. But I think also... Social media is funny. And I think it's a bit like TripAdvisor. You get a lot of people complaining about how bad things are, but you don't get people saying, actually, my menopause was fine. I don't have any symptoms because I can't be asked to talk about it. You only hear the bad, the sensationalist stories. The number of restaurants I've been to, great time, can't be asked to leave a review. But because that review isn't there, you read one bad review. Oh, I can't go there. And social media can be a little bit like that. If you look for bad symptoms of the menopause, you will find it to think this is the only truth. I completely agree with you on this. And again, going back to like the perimenopause, I I feel so kind of galvanized to say, look, yeah, okay, there's going to be some rubbishy things. But there were some rubbishy things when we were teenagers that we went oh, through. Oh, God, yes. And we all got through it. You know, yes, we might have got spots or, you know, we had bad mood swings and all of this stuff. But... We got through it and that's fine. And I'm not I'm not for any, you know, one second saying or dumbing down or, or kind of not giving the weight that the symptoms deserve. But what I am saying is there are you don't see very often the the more empowering side or of kind of right, okay, this is what we're gonna do and this is how we're gonna feel better. You know, I, I recently did take a couple of supplements which are really working for me with Vitabiotics and it's helping me run fast and run for longer. And I feel great. I actually, in my 40s, feel so much better than I did in my 20s and my 30s because I got the knowledge to kind of change my lifestyle by the time I hit 40. So I feel like I'm living quite a, a good life in that sense because of the the information I was given through this podcast. And it's about preparation and a, a, allowing people to kind of have the tools to manage their own well-being, isn't it? Yeah. It's not the end of your life. It's the end of your periods. Yeah. And if this is a wake-up call to start exercising and eat healthily and take vitamin supplements if you need and just get your life back, it's it's a new start to kind of, right, let's see where I go. It's not a bad thing. And I think it's getting rid of that negative mindset. Yes, some people will have a terrible time, but a lot of people won't. The same like they're going through puberty or giving birth. And don't don't imagine it's going to be the end of the world because then it will be. Absolutely. And, you know, going back to your to your book, Under the Knife, one of the things and, and what you talked about and discussed um, earlier was in those earlier years when you were training and ha and having depression and the suicidal thoughts and also the sexual harassment that you experienced in the workplace. There was obviously um, a report done about this not that long ago for sexual harassment towards female surgeons. Just talk me through some of your experiences and kind of, again, how you navigated that. It was really, really hard. Um, I was the only female surgical trainee um, in the hospitals I was working in. I didn't work for a female colleague until I'd been a doctor for about 15 years. 
it was very much a man's world. And at the time, there was a lot of um, sexual harassment going on. It was normal. It was just par for the course. I had people, bosses look me up over the operating table and say, you know, you look like you could go around or two. Who are you shagging at the minute? Wandering hands, groping your nipples or brushes. You went into theatre. I was at a Christmas party and a consultant from another hospital came up and ground his erection into me saying it's only cheating if we snog in a dark corner, it's fine on the dance floor. And the thing is, when someone, when a male, when you're operating, you are wearing scrubs. So you're not in your uniform, you're in thin cotton pajamas standing hip to knee with your boss. There's no barrier and there's a patient on the table and they can say what they like. And you can't say, hang on, you can't do that because there's a patient on the table. It's not the time to say that behavior is not called out. But when no one else in the room stands up for you, it's like, oh, okay, this this is normal. I have to put up with this. Now, I, I was relatively lucky. I only experienced it as a junior surgeon. I, I took time out to do a PhD. And when I came back, I was more, I think I was a stronger woman. I was less naive. I was I got that confidence to kind of stop it. But people are being harassed and even raped. I think there's a report coming out today, the day we're recording, just showing how bad it is. There's still only about 13 or 15% of surgeons who are female, but it's not just surgery. It's in every walk of medicine because it, it's a personality thing. I think there are some there are some men who will always sexually harass women, but we are now trying to say, you need to speak out if you see it help women and men who it happens to call it out where to go for support. But it was just, you put up with it to get the job. Because if I, if I call my boss out and say, say, Natalie, you can't do this to me. I'm sorry. That joke crossed the line. I depend on you to train me. And if I piss you off and you think, right, I'm not going to let her come to theater. I'm not going to let her operate. Her logbook's going to fail. She could be put back a year or go and have the really bad job. I have that power to influence the rest of her career. Now that's changed the way jobs are given, but it was just, it was really, really hard. The abuse of power is absolutely unbelievable. Well, it's not unbelievable, but it's, I can't actually, like you said, you're responsible. You literally life and death. If you make a wrong move, that operation could go seriously wrong. And that's somebody else's family. And you as a professional, you know, you've taken your oath and you're, you're doing the best that you can do for your patient. That it's made me feel a little bit sick, to be honest, like that I can't believe it. For anyone listening, most operations that we do where this happens, it's not the emergency life or death stabbing. It's routine, run of the mill, gallbladders, hernia surgery. And for a lot of surgery, it's routine. You're chatting. It's like when you're driving, you're not constantly going mirror signal maneuver. You're just chatting away as you're doing the boring bits. And it's over that bit that the banter happens and the banter goes too far. So there's it doesn't happen when patients' lives are at risk. It's dur- during the boring bits of an operation, but it's still... It's I'm still trapped. an abusive power because it's you can't still, get out. And once once they've done it, they, they can get away with it again. Well, how far can I push it? Because she let me say that. Oh, she let me do that. That means it's fine to put a hand on a bum as she walks down the corridor. What can I do next time? And obviously, like in my industry, in the entertainment industry, since we had the Me Too movement, there are a lot more safeguarding things in place. You know, we have intimacy coordinators on set to make sure that when we are working, everything is professional and everyone feels comfortable. Is there any form or, or do you know of anything coming into play of any safeguarding in those operating theatres or for women? It is coming off the back of the big report. Um, there are systems coming into place to try and find female, um, I can't remember the name of the word, 
someone in every hospital trust you can go to to talk about this. It's and potentially having independent inquiries, because if the trust investigates a consultant, they bring in money there in post. It's easier for a trainee to move on. It's their word against yours. And I I called out one consultant and I backed down in that room because I just thought no one's going to believe me. So trying to get independent inquiries and doing courses for kind of um, for bystanders, how to speak up safely. If you witness something, who can you go to so it doesn't get back? Because hospitals are such a small place. So measures are coming in to try and make it a safer place and hopefully encourage more women into surgery because it is still the most amazing career. And as you said, it would almost be like, like again, like we were saying, like having an intimacy coordinator is having somebody in the room to witness the practice, like an almost an independent. And I know that would be difficult with funding and everything else, but just to have somebody in that room to make sure that everything that's happening is above board and professional. Um, I'm so sorry that you experienced that. It made me feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> I almost wonder whether I was guilty myself because I'd learned this behavior. I'd learned the sexual jokes and banter were normal. As a consultant, um, when I was putting, we have long sticky drapes we put on the patient to make the wound sterile. And I would hold them up and ask one of the junior anesthetic, anesthetic trainees to strip me, meaning take off that bit of tape. I think it's funny. But looking back, that was quite a sexually aggressive language I was using, which I thought was funny. And is it something I've learned and no one told me? And maybe at the end of every clinical procedure, we have a review of the um, the relationships in the room. Did anyone say anything that offended you that was too far? Let's stop that again. Making it a normal part of a uh, review of the end of the procedure. I think that's a, a brilliant idea because like you say, you know, learned behaviours, even in at university or college or when you're when you're training and that kind of environment. And when you're a lot younger, you can't, you do kind of have those jokes and banter, but obviously when you're moving... And you want to fit in, but when you're moving into a more professional environment, um, yeah, just having somebody there to review or like look at the minutes of a meeting almost, you know, that kind of thing, like a transcript. There are so many cultural differences, people of different cultures and religions and backgrounds. It's something I say normally may be very offensive, but they're too shy to speak up. So I think having that rather than tick box exercise, you do a quick two hour learning thing in your lunchtime, actually do that every time so people have a voice to speak up in a safe space. Now, before we kind of have to finish up, I just want to ask you kind of where where are, where are you now, like in your journey, obviously knowing that you've you've got this most recent diagnosis, where are you at and how are you feeling? At the moment, I'm in a weird place. I'm struggling with the side effects of drugs that I may need to be on for the next 20, 30 years of my life whilst knowing that my breast cancer can come back again. And I'm trying to find more time for the joy in my life, more wild swimming and more being spontaneous and doing fun and getting better at planning and scheduling the videos and the talks and the podcasts. I've got another book to write. And it's just, it's finding that balance of just being Liz again. I spend so much time being the breast surgeon with breast cancer and I love it. And I love all the letters and comments and questions and I love helping people, but it's just remembering I need to look after myself along the way. Absolutely. And that's kind of what I said to you at the very beginning. And I do really honestly appreciate the time that you've given me because I'm like, oh, kind of contradicting myself in the one hand, you know, you've come to chat, but it's been lovely. It's been nice sharing the story. And I just for anyone out there going through a cancer diagnosis, your mental health will almost certainly be affected. And the depression, anxiety, PTSD can hit you months or even years down the line. And a lot of Macmillan centers and Maggie centers do have free counseling available. And for me, talking to someone completely anonymous 
where I could just say whatever I needed to and rant about whoever and not have to worry about how they would feel when I left the room was incredible. So if you are struggling, please reach out to your cancer nurses and ask them if that helps available. And, you know, as you mentioned, then wild swimming, kind of just any other practical things that are working for you that you are finding enjoyment out of? What what are those things? I love getting in the gym and lifting weights and seeing the muscles grow. That makes me feel really strong. But then it's nature. It's just sitting out, sitting in the kitchen, just looking at the birds on the feeder. Just those, that's my mindfulness of just realizing there's a lot of shit going on everywhere. But actually, there are moments that just bring me happy and just make me feel, yeah, everything's okay at the minute. Oh, I'm so pleased to hear that. And for anyone else listening in, you know, again, it's, it's it's good to remember at all times, there's a lot going on in the world right now, but to also just take those small moments and, you know, get out for a walk and look at the changing seasons and have that moment of mindfulness, even watch some telly, like watch watch just rubbish telly to just switch off for a bit turn off the digital space in a way and and just get back to kind of like you were saying before being yourself being at one with yourself move your body eat yeah. nice food and- switch your phone off for a day yeah instagram can wait you don't need to post every day they'll still be there when you come back oh liz thank you so much for joining me it's really been an absolute pleasure to have you with me and to get all of your incredible advice and insight thanks for having me natalie it's been great to chat I hope it's been really helpful for you all at home too. For more from Liz, you can find her on Instagram at Liz or visit her website www.liz.oreardon.co.uk. Her brilliant best-selling books, Under the Knife and The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer are available online and at all good bookshops. For more wellbeing and lifestyle, you can visit us at our website, www.thecapsule.co.uk, where you can also catch up with our previous podcast episodes by streaming from any of our podcast channels and YouTube. Please do feel free to leave your rates and reviews on this brand new series. I would love to hear from you as we go on. You can also drop us a message at our Instagram, at Official Capsule, if you'd like to put any questions to our future guests or leave a message about any of our previous or current episodes. I'll be back next week with another very special guest. So all that's left for us to say today is goodbye. So it's goodbye from Liz. Bye. And goodbye from me. Bye-bye.